Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Kinnear, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asian Focus newsletter. Our topic today is Central Asian asylum seekers in Europe. Life's hard for many people in Central Asia, but especially hard for those who speak their minds to challenge or criticize the governments there. To stay could mean going to prison or worse. So some of these people choose to flee their homelands, but where can they go and be safe? Russia is the easiest place to reach, but there have been many times when Central Asian governments declared individuals to be wanted for crimes back home and Russian authorities detained them and sent them back. We've seen this several times with Tajik authorities and Pimeri activists just this year. Reaching Europe is the goal. It's safer than being in Russia, but not entirely safe. And there are obstacles and red tape in Europe they must contend with. To discuss this, I am joined by... Laila Nazgul Saitbek, a lawyer living in exile in Europe. Laila is the chairwoman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia and member of the working group for the Global Treaty to End All Forms of Violence Against Women and Girls. Christoph Riedel, Senior Policy Advisor for Asylum, Migration and Human Rights at the organization Diakonia Österreich or Diakonia Austria. Thank you both for joining me today. And Laila, I wanted to start with you. Uh, and I have a basic question. Uh, most of the people uh, that are from Central Asia that are seeking asylum in Europe at the moment. Uh, to the best of your knowledge, are most of these people political refugees? Yes, um, most of these people are political refugees and they're being persecuted by their uh, states for either their journalism work or their activism or simply uh, criticizing their authorities uh, somewhere in, in, uh, in social networks. And, and Christoph, we'll move on to you here real quick. Um, what, if these people show up in Europe, in a European country, and you're, you're in Austria right now, uh, when they show up and they're looking for asylum for political reasons, can you explain some of the process they have to go through? I mean, who do they have to contact? Uh, what do they have to do to try to keep from getting sent back to their homeland? Yeah, I just, I just can speak from, from the perspective of Austria. Uh, I think it's a little different in, in uh, every country in, in, in Europe. When, when they show up in Austria, they have to, to make an asylum application and there is no legal help from the beginning. So they make the asylum application and then they have to, to wait for their so-called asylum interview and uh, yeah, tell everything about the um, uh, prosecution uh, yeah, and and uh, after some weeks or months, there will be a, a decision. We are not very happy often with the decisions in the in the first instance uh, in Austria. The second instance is is uh, is much better. This is a court in the second instance. But I think the the situation, the political situation in, in Central Asia is, is very underestimated in, in Austria by the asylum authorities. So I think there is that they don't know so much about this region. Chances to, to, to be granted asylum are not very high in Austria. Thanks. And do these people have to register with Austrian authorities uh, when they're there? They, I mean, surely they must have to provide some kind of address or something where they can be contacted, right? Yeah, yeah. They have to, to register and then they, they get uh, accommodation by the state uh, where they have to, to, to live for the, for the first time. Yeah, and there is the, the asylum procedure uh, going on in this in this time. There are, maybe there are some... Some interviews, more, more than one interviews, and then there's a, a, a first decision uh, whether they are granted asylum uh, or not, or other forms of, of, of protection 
like uh, subsidiary protection. Uh -huh, great, thank you. Okay, and here's a question that's uh, for both of you, and I'll start with you, Christoph, but Lila, I want you to answer the same question too. Um, some of these people are obviously high profile in their, in their homelands. Uh, you know, they had to flee for very good reason, as I mentioned in the introduction, that they, they face imprisonment or, or possibly worse, and their governments are looking for them. Um, so what happens when, you know, when some of these governments, when one of these governments makes a request with the Austrian government and says, we believe that one of our citizens is present, is present in your country, uh, you know, and there's books on transnational repression. So we know this stuff happens all the time. But what's the process when uh, a government in Central Asia says, we have, you're a citizen of ours in your country, uh, they're wanted on charges, and we want you to detain them and send them back? It's always uh, very crucial that you can bring some kind of proof. Maybe you have witnesses, maybe you have uh, some documents, written documents that you can uh, bring to the procedure and show that, that this is uh, really, really true and that you are in danger. Otherwise, um, it's always the problem that authorities don't believe so much what they are, they are told by asylum seekers. Yeah, in regards to the situation where the person is uh, searched through Interpol, for example, this this when this happens, it complicates the entire asylum procedure, obviously. And then, um, of course, this information is checked through um, law enforcement agencies. And I think that should probably be universal throughout Europe. In particular, in, in Austria, that would be usually the, the prosecutor's office that would be checking that information and doing the background check and the contacts and everything. And I can actually bring up uh, this this um, very sad example of uh, of the case uh, that happened in Austria. And the asylum seeker's name was um, Shovali Zoda, his And we have actually stepped into this, e uh, this this case quite late. We simply didn't know that this was happening, unfortunately. With him, uh, he was on the Interpol uh, wanted list. And um, the the Eisenstadt uh, prosecutor has uh, has actually con conducted a very thorough check into, into the allegations against him. And they issued a very extensive letter for the authorities, for Austrian authorities, stating that he is a simple, you know, simply a political activist and is not a terrorist, is now by no means is he an extremist, that he is a supporter of the opposition political party. The problem is, though, even even when uh, the prosecutor or um, other authorized uh, agencies do their job really well and, uh, you know, check everything and come to the, the correct conclusions, the problem is it, the, the the mistakes can can happen at the highest level as well. And um, as happened in, in the case of Shovali Zadat, the, the, the judge has simply ignored the decision of the the conclusions that that the prosecutor has um, has uh, provided. One of the things that judge actually used against Shovali Zoda uh, during the proceeding, and Christoph perhaps can probably add some things to it because he worked on that case as well. One of the things that were used, that were used against Shovali Zoda were the fact that Tajik authorities have uh, provided false information, for example, regarding the names of the parents of Shovali Zoda. So they just simply written, uh, they, they, they wrote in uh, random names that he doesn't know. And when he was asked what the names of his parents were, obviously he gave the actual names. 
And the judge would ask, you know, well, why is this inconsistency? Obviously, he can't answer that question. He, he, has no, he had no control over, you know, what the Tajik authorities did. So he obviously couldn't answer that, that question. And that was used against him, not in his favor. And, and somehow the, you know, it happens very often. And especially the majority of the asylum seekers actually come with quite heavy criminal charges. And um, most of these criminal charges are, you know, they sound quite scary, starting from terrorism, extremism, the organization and financing of criminal or organized crime group, for example. And when, when normal people that don't know what Tajikistan is or Uzbekistan is, they obviously have no idea that these charges are used against people that have nothing to do with these issues at all. And the authorities usually treat these cases, you know, not from the point of view of presumption of innocence of the asylum seeker, that there is a clear presumption of guilt. That's how they treat it. Well, Christoph, you want to add something to that, too? I mean, listening to Lila, it seems like the authorities, at least in Austria, are more willing to give credibility to the governments of the region as opposed yeah. to... The, the problem is in, in this case or in these cases, and I think this is more often that uh, use such such crime offense against, against the people. If, if there's a search warrant from, from Interpol, this is a completely other department in the law enforcement section of the of the ministry even other ministry which is uh, responsible here in these cases the proof if there is an um, extradition possible yeah this has nothing to do with an asylum claim of course if somebody uh, committed a crime uh, this is not the case for asylum so Somehow, um, it's it's possible that the 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 authorities from Tajikistan or, or wherever trick the 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 Austrian authorities. Uh, in this case, uh, by giving to this uh, to this uh, Interpol warrant uh, wrong data, wrong personal data, the just the authorities did not the asylum authorities did not believe that this is the correct person uh, who is sitting in front of them because who does not know the name of his parents and so in this case this person was deported after a negative asylum decision because of incredibility and it was not uh, extradition because of the the crime he should have uh, committed and the interpol uh, warrant so this is this is really tricky, yeah? and we and we know that that this is not a single case where governments uh, make search warrants uh, via Interpol, wrong accusations to bring the the people home, uh, and and yeah, in this case, this was very tragic because uh, yeah, he's yeah. he's now in prison, yeah, for, for a very very long time. Yeah, the, the, the thing I just wanted to, 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 to mention, the thing is that the, the Eisenstadt prosecutor in the case of Shovalizadeh has denied the extradition. So he wasn't extradited. He was just deported because of what Christoph mentioned. And also the point um, of, of, of this, uh, the major problem of, of the situation is that these uh, situations don't just happen in Austria. They happen all over Europe. And the worst place uh, for, for us right now 
that you know where we are facing the worst case scenarios of treatment of uh, asylum seekers is unfortunately Poland. Partially that happened due to war that started in Europe because many of these dissidents have been living in Ukraine. And when the war started, they obviously fled to the nearest safe country, which was Poland. And we have situations there where politically persecuted persons were um, detained, obviously, because all of them have interpols, all of them are on, you know, on wanted lists, uh, all of them have um, the traditional set of charges, the, the ones I mentioned. And um, some of these people we can't locate even now. And it is already over half a year, uh, half a year later, we still don't know where these people are. It's it's quite difficult to defend them because they don't have they usually don't have any access to to any means of communication, to internet or to telephone, uh, to call somebody. They don't know that they can actually you know try to find human rights defenders or contact some human rights organization. They oftentimes don't have access to lawyers, and we do know that there is a, a shortage of lawyers in in Poland. Obviously. Um, it's very difficult to find pro bono lawyers in in Poland, and it's very difficult to hire, you know, those that are are available for you know for money because uh, many of these um, ex exiled uh, activists don't simply don't have the funds to to pay for you know the, the legal fees. Thank you for mentioning that. Before we get too far away from that, I just wanted to ask, you know, you you said that after the after Russia started the war on Ukraine that, that there'd been a jump. Can you can you give us a little more sense of that? I mean, obviously we don't have any numbers or anything like that, but but it was that noticeable that there were many more people that had come suddenly from Ukraine that were originally from Central Asia and, and came into came into Europe? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we have been trying to track to, to to track down several dozens actually of people, and we know that it's not dozens; it's probably more into hundreds. Um, that there is, um, for example, a case that we are uh, monitoring right now of a uh, IRPT activist, and um, interestingly, he um, had an asylum procedure in in Ukraine, and um, uh, he also had an asylum not not an asylum, but he also had an extradition uh, request in Ukraine. And he actually fought it off. He applied to um, European Court for Human Rights. And um, the court issued a decision in his favor, basically stopping his uh, extradition to, uh, to Tajikistan. And they have substantiated the reasons why he can't be sent. So he has that decision and he showed up in Poland with that decision. The problem is the Polish judge has ignored this decision by quite with a with a very interesting argument he said this decision isn't issued for Poland it's issued for Ukraine which you know formally is kind of correct procedurally you know because it's really not a decision in regards to Poland but still i mean it's a decision of the european court and it holds the essence of the case right i mean it has the context uh, context it, it explains the situation the individual situation of this person and um, explains quite clearly why he can't be extradited. But he's he's right now in the extradition jail in uh, in Poland and is facing uh, is facing uh, a possibility of of being sent back to Tajikistan. And um, we, I mean, there, this is not a single case. There are many of those, um, unfortunately, in Poland right now. And um, there, there was a case of a married couple with two small children, two and three year old 
girls actually, they crossed to the, together, I think, two days after the war started. The wife and the husband both were on the Interpol on charges of extremism and terrorism. Obviously, obviously, all of those charges are fabricated. The, they were separated at the border and the husband was left uh, with the two girls and the, the wife was arrested and she was seven months pregnant. We still can't find her. We don't know whether or not she had a baby or whatever happened to her. We were not able to locate her still. Unbelievable, right? And the husband was arrested two days later. We spent so much time trying to, to track down the girls. You know, thank God the girls were picked up by the auntie and um, she's there living with her in one of the other European countries. But the husband is arrested. We don't know where the husband is either. So we can't track some of the people. We know that they were there. They were arrested and what happened to them and they vanish in the system somewhere. And there are dozens of cases like that. Huh. Um Wow. Um, it's the midpoint of the show, so i got to do my, my promo spot here real quick, and we'll get right back into this and talk about um, the, the attitude of governments in, in Europe toward the request from Central Asian governments. Uh, but first, let me remind that this is RFRL's Medjly's podcast, and I'm the host, Bruce Panier, and today we're talking about Central Asian asylum seekers in Europe. I'm joined today by Christoph Riedel, Senior Policy Advisor for Asylum, Migration and Human Rights at the organization Diakonia Österreich or Diakonia Austria. And Lila Nazgul Seidbeck, a lawyer living in exile in Europe. Lila is also a chairwoman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia and a member of the Working Group for a Global Treaty to End All Forms of Violence Against Women and Girls. And my question now, and I guess I'll start with you, Christoph, is that, um, you know, you've said Obviously, the Central Asian governments are making requests. They even have, uh, you know, inter Interpol red notices out on some of these people. Um, but there's been a lot of work done in recent years about about transnational repression and, and the abuse of, of Interpol red notices, for instance, and, and other law enforcement agencies by governments back in Central Asia. Have you noticed that there's been any improvement? I mean, one would think by this time the credibility of, say, the Tajik government would be very low in Europe. Even it's understandable you can't un know all the political situations of all the countries you have to deal with if you're an immigration officer in Austria. Still, uh, you know, Tajikistan is practically a poster boy mm -hmm. for uh, abusing the system. Uh, is, has, has there been any improvement? Are, did you notice that authorities are more skeptical when they get, uh, you know, arrest warrants from Central Asian governments? This is really hard to say because uh, there are not so many cases, I think, if there's really an, an improvement. In this special case we, we, we spoke about, yeah, it it was really, um, they played a trick on this person, yeah, because giving a, a wrong uh, search warrant um, with the wrong uh, names of the of the parents, of course, this will be lead to an uh, incredibility in the asylum procedure. So uh, they didn't uh, really try to to get this person uh, by this uh, search warrant uh, and didn't really want to that he is extradited from from Austria uh, because of this criminal uh, offense. Uh, but he was deported. Uh, in the in the asylum case, because he was not credible, because the the authorities did not believe 
that this is the person he, he said that he is. And this is this this is really a, a, a very bad a trick uh, they played on this person. Yeah, I think uh, you, you, you are right. Uh, authorities will be suspicious uh, when they have this uh, Interpol uh, warrants and uh, will have a second look. But it, if it comes uh, like in this case, yeah, it's very, very difficult for the asylum authorities to find uh, the, the correct decision. Thank you. Um, and Lila, the same, same kind of question to you. Um, you've been doing this for years. Have you noticed that, that authorities are getting a little more wise to the abuse of the system by Central Asian governments? I mean, you know, they, they receive a, an arrest warrant for a citizen who's seeking asylum out there. Do they, is it to the point where they go, oh, these guys in Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan or something, again, they're always, uh, always giving us wrong information and trying to, trying to get their citizens back illegally. Have they, have they got to that point or do they... Does it seem like you're just going through the, the same process every single time that uh, there's a, a warrant out for the arrest of an asylum seeker, even after all these years? No, I actually I have to be I have to say to say um, to, to be quite straightforward and, and perhaps it will it will come out a bit harsh. But that is the the the, um, the sad truth. The authorities aren't anywhere near this point at all right now. And we have cases in Sweden, for example, of an activist who has been tortured uh, by the KNB in KNB. I'm sorry, in in Kazakhstan, to the point where they have actually shattered all of her front teeth. And um, we're trying to, and actually planning to, uh, to place her in the um, in psychiatry ward, uh, which is you know, which, which is a widely um, practiced thing. Uh, there is punitive psychiatry. And um, Swedish authorities, for example, um, haven't taken into account any of the arguments at all from um, even from Freedom House, you know, or from other well-known uh, human rights organizations. The letters of support that are coming in from from these organizations are being ignored. And there is tons of asylum seekers that don't even have letters like that. It's it's not just that. It's um, we have tons of cases in Germany that are being treated this way, and I think it has a lot to do with, unfortunately, with low qualification of experts or officers that are working in these asylum migration offices. That perhaps it would be a good idea to you know to somehow begin um, some sort of a training because the person that is reviewing a case out of the region has to at least understand the context of the region right and you know not 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 be not fall into these traps that are set by the authorities you know, because they can they can be quite devious right and we have again we have tons of cases where authorities would try to build their cases against this this activist and they would use you know when you when they are trying to fabricate a case they would try to accuse for example a person of of being in Syria at a certain point in time and that person wasn't even anywhere near Syria at the time he was you know in another country and he can prove it for example and then the, the authorities go back we actually this actually has happened and they, they go back and they amend their uh, charges and they add something else and they, they still don't they, they still don't stick so the the Central Asian authorities are sitting there and just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what what, what sticks. 
uh, and the European authorities, unfortunately, are not seeing it this way uh, at this mo moment. We have actually, you know, trying to help out the the colleagues more. I mean, I'm not even sure if authorities are are even concerned or are aware of this problem in Europe. But we we prepared a paper that talks about abuse of these charges by Central Asian authorities, and it's hanging on our website for, you know, colleagues to use or for asylum seekers to use. And there we tried to provide some examples of how, you know, of, of some indications of fabrication in the case, which, which obviously are not, I mean, the list of these uh, examples are, is not exhaustive because they, they can come up with all kinds of crazy scenarios and ideas that, you know, that each... Uh, expert is going to to have to analyze, and there is um, there is also an article that I wrote and it was published on Open Democracy, which talks about about the situation of asylum seekers in Europe, and it's called Europe's weak protections for refugees leave Central Asian dissidents at extreme risk. And this um, this in, in this article, I also tried to discuss the the difference in you know how how asylum seekers from Central Asia are being treated and compared to, for example, asylum seekers from Belarus. We didn't even know about Ukrainian asylum seekers because it was it was last year. It was um, it was published in October 2021. But even even you know this this example of how Ukrainian refugees are received that the that it is a, a, a very strong contrast to to how the asylum seekers from Central Asia are being treated here. Yes, that's unfortunate, and I have noticed that too in the news that it's much much tougher for Central Asians to get asylum than it is um, for. Well, I, there's no other way to say it than for some of the people from European countries uh, that come in. Okay, let's, Christoph. I, I hope I'll do something here that's kind of like a public service spot um, for Central Asians who are thinking of seeking asylum or fleeing their governments or something like that. I know we talked a little bit about the process, but I, I just came from Central Asia. I'm, you know, I've been involved, say I've been involved with an opposition group, a legitimate opposition group that the government's now banned and is cracking down on. And I, I finally made my way to Austria. What's the first thing I should do if I want to get asylum? The first and best thing would be to contact a really asylum experts who help you in the procedure from the scratch from the from the very beginning you have to understand how this procedure is is working and it's it's very crucial and important that you uh, really informed how it works and and how to contact in this in this uh, first uh, first uh, interview which is essential how do i find this these people or this person exactly um because like i said if, you know if basic knowledge of the language uh what, yeah. what would be an organization or or yeah, some organizations like like diakonie or or caritas you have to find one it's it's um and and ask other people where they are going to. They they give uh, free advice. They have uh, really good good lawyers and specialists on the on the, the field of asylum. You have to know that in in Austria this was uh, for many years um, the the legal 
uh, counseling is is made by by NGOs. There are still some uh, who who work uh, very independent and and uh, do a great job in in uh, in helping people. But you have to find them. Yeah, this is this is true. The the asylum officer in the in this in in this. Uh, Counseling center will will help you to to collect uh, all the information uh, you can provide to the to the uh, in the procedure uh, and and uh, maybe bring some proofs or speak with you who could be witnesses uh, uh, you could uh, name. Who could be asked if this this uh, really is 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 true? What you said? Are there any publications uh, somewhere where the authorities could uh, could see uh, that this is really uh, happening? Uh, so, uh, as I said in the beginning, I think this, the the political situation in many of these countries is very underestimated, and there is no not so much knowledge. There are not high numbers of asylum seekers. Yeah, I would say the situation is very dangerous uh, for many people at, uh, who are at, at high risk. And uh, so it, it is good uh, when, when uh, you have help from the beginning to provide the correct informations, uh, information to the, to the authorities. This is very important. Great, thank you. And I know it's hard to say how long the the process takes to actually get asylum in these countries. But but what is the shortest time you can ever remember that for someone to go through the process of getting asylum in a country in Austria? The shortest time will be two to three months. The longest will be uh, ten years. Uh, so you can never say it, it it depends on 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 the country where you come from it depends on the procedure it depends if if the belief the authorities believe you in the first instance uh, or if you have to 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 fight for your rights uh, in the second instance or in the third instance uh, there is the, the the constitutional court uh, where we bring cases to then uh, it takes several years uh, sometimes to get the correct decision in a case okay thank you and then Lila okay I'm a, I'm an asylum seeker and now I'm I'm out there and somewhere in Europe and I have to wait years uh, several years to before I have my asylum status is approved obviously I'm in a vulnerable situation. Uh, what what can people do? I mean, how easy is it to get a job? Uh, you know, I mean, Christoph had mentioned that that maybe the government will give you a place that you can stay. I don't know how long they're willing to let you stay there, but but you have now you have a person who really has no residency at all, and so really no right to work, uh, and they're at risk when they leave the house because they they have to worry that maybe the government in the place the country they came from is looking for them and might try to grab them or something on the street, sent them, sent some thugs out to beat them up. You know, what, what, what can you do to get, to get by in this, this period where you have really no status, no residency status? Well, in regards to the job, um, I guess uh, it would be uh, also uh, valuable um, if, if Christoph can, um, can add to that. But generally, uh, when the person enters the asylum procedure, the person is not allowed to work for the entire procedure, throughout the entire procedure. And the asylum seeker receives some amount 
of uh, money for, you know, to cover the basic needs. And these amounts are usually quite small. Uh, they vary, obviously, from country to country. But I think on average, that would be 150 to 200 euros, perhaps, per month. Um, and Christoph can maybe correct me if I'm wrong. And during during this uh, this time, again, what can the asylum seeker do? Uh, there is really not much the asylum seeker can do. He or she may try to, uh, you know, continue their activism somehow. A journalist can continue trying to, you know, write if they still are a part of the organization they used to work with and basically try to learn the language. Unfortunately, Many asylum seekers don't have access to language courses uh, for the duration of the um, asylum procedure. And that privilege often is only granted after the asylum status is granted, basically. Christoph, do you, do you, do you, do you have anything to add? I think, I think you, you do. It would be interesting to hear what yeah, what, this what is, you uh, know. Everything is correct from the, uh, for the situation in Austria. Uh, which is not the best, I would say, in, in Europe. There are really very different systems in, in, in all the, the, the countries. Uh, in some countries, you can work. In some countries, it's, it's forbidden. In Austria, it's not forbidden, but it's uh, nearly impossible to find uh, a working, to get a working permit. So, yeah, you cannot uh, answer this question for, for all of uh, Europe. But uh, the, to the other question, what what do you uh, can you do if you are really in danger? Uh, again, I would I would uh, search for 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 legal help from the from the very beginning. Yeah, uh, in such a case, uh, I would speak to the Austrian authorities uh, very early and and uh, tell them this is a person uh, of of high risk and and the government is looking for this person. The home government is looking for this person. I remember some cases where it was uh, possible to provide um, safe accommodations for these people uh, where they could not be found. So this this is possible, but you you need help to do this. You cannot do this uh, on your own. Yeah, I think I think also walking over to any police department and uh, registering a statement in your language, in any language that the silent speaker uh, speaks, laying out basically, uh, you know, the information that they have, whether or not they're being stalked, whether or not they have received any threats. If, if the threats came through some sort of a messenger, uh, it would be great to, you know, make screenshots and attach them to the statement and submit it to the police. The, the police usually in the European Union, they, they, um, they do a pretty good job at uh, addressing statements from, well, based on, 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 on my experience, cooperating with the law enforcement, thank God, which actually, t- <laughs> um, a small comment took me, um, it took me a long time to actually not be afraid of them, not be afraid of the police in the European Union. But usually, they usually do their jobs as well. Yeah, because of course that's another problem for asylum seekers. Is you have a, if you come from Central Asia, uh, you're probably really suspicious of the police and probably yeah. the legal system. Actually, yeah, I understand this uh, totally. This is intimidating, uh, of course. Yeah, um, my advice would be uh, look for a lawyer who represents you in the in the procedure. Uh, he he or she can 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 
also help with protecting you in a in, in a, a safe in a safe accommodation. Yeah, and there are also a number of organizations that have you know that work on thematic things, uh, such as, for example, the asylum seeker happened to be uh, a victim of human trafficking or human smuggling, for example, there are organizations that work separately on this issue and they usually do have uh, possibilities to provide additional help. They also do provide, if not lawyers, they do provide funding for lawyers and um, and safe accommodations, as Christoph has mentioned. So there are organizations, and there are plenty of them uh, around Europe, they, the asylum seeker just needs to, um, to try and find them you know, at least try to Google things, even if it's in Russian or probably in Russian, mostly um, the asylum seekers from Central Asia would Google things like that and, uh, and see what comes up and uh, Google human rights organizations and, and see if they can get at least, you know, some some starter, some starting point there and perhaps, you know, this um, because, because this, this is a really important starting point. Uh, because some of the asylum seekers that show up in Europe, they um, some of them do know that they can write us an email uh, through some through some friends of theirs that know us, for example, and um, and we try to provide as many resources as we can. But our main problem is that with many we can't even establish a connection. We don't know. I mean, most of the asylum seekers just fall through the cracks. We never find out that these people were here. There is an office of, from Amnesty International, uh, from the Helsinki Committee. There are Helsinki committees uh, all over in uh, uh, Europe, and these are good first uh, contact addresses you you can easily yeah, yeah. find, and and they co can connect you with the specialists in in each country. Great, that's valuable information. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we're running to the end of our program, but I wanted to give uh, you both a chance to make any comments you wanted to that you think our audience needs to know or anyone who's potentially an asylum seeker sometime in the future needs to know. Um, so please, Lila, if you could start. I think that the main, uh, the main recommendation I would have, a main advice I would have uh, for the asylum seekers that reach Europe is um, is to to immediately register with um, the authorized uh, government agency that takes care of cases of asylum. And if that is not possible, somehow um, the first contact can be made at the police department. And be as clear as possible with um, the situation, as honest as possible. Uh, just explain the threats. It is always a bad idea to try and hide and stay in Europe um, on an illegal basis that is not going to save is not going to save you, is not going to help down the road either. So do everything timely is the main advice. Thank you. Crystal? Yeah, I would I would 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 say very much the same. So don't believe to the stories of the smugglers that tell you when you come to Europe, when you come to this country, tell this or that. Stick to your own story. The truth is always the best. They they will find out most of the time. So it's it's uh, not really happening that you you will be granted asylum with a fabricated story. And yeah, I can just repeat myself. Um, uh, seek help from the from the very beginning. Uh, try to find spe uh, specialized organizations 
lawyers uh, who who can help you. Uh, sometimes when you just go into the system and and wait, it can be uh, too late for the help, or it it can be very can get very difficult for legal help uh, when it's it starts uh, too late on on your procedure. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Uh, thank you, Lila. Do we have? Do, Bruce, do we have another second? Yes, we do. If you want to add something, go ahead, please. I I do. Um, I just wanted to uh, to address the authorities. Just you know, if we are lucky and anyone is listening to this, this issue um, needs to be addressed as soon as possible. The issue of asylum seekers uh, from Central Asia. I mean. And um, somehow it needs to be it needs to be brought to the highest possible level here to you know to start this discussion because the problem of institutional racism, for example, is a problem uh, within the migration agencies, unfortunately, in how they treat asylum cases. The treatment of Muslim asylum seekers is a problem that needs to be addressed as well. The overall understanding of the region needs to be addressed within the, um, the, the authorized agencies. This is very important because um, when people show up and, um, you know, he says or she says that they're on the interval, that doesn't necessarily mean that person has committed some, some horrible crime. In fact, most of the asylum seekers that are charged with these things, uh, when you read their um, when you read their Papers from, say, Tajik or Uzbek authorities, investigative authorities, they usually lack very important things in them, such as, you know, they, they don't provide description of any violent acts committed by that person. And the people are actually accused of extremism simply for, you know, just knowing somebody or... Uh, supporting somebody or maybe talking to somebody who the authorities find uh, to be their opponent. For example, you know, if somebody is a friend of an I IRPT member and people are actually being charged with extremism simply because they know somebody from the IRPT, for example. So this awareness needs to be raised within within the European migration and asylum agencies. I think it's very important because there are so many people who are suffering because who suffer because they are fighting for democracy, for their rights in the region. And that is the only thing that they did. And uh, when they come here and they're being re-victimized and they're being re-traumatized by authorities here in European Union, that's, you know, that's, that's a very bad thing because they come here in hopes of finding truth, in hopes of finding rule of law, in hopes of finding a, a treatment that they are fighting for in their countries and are unable to have, and they're not finding it here. Thank you for adding that. I appreciate that. And, you know, and on that note, too, I also want to mention that uh, anyone who wants to know just how bad the problem is can also go to uh, the Exeter University website, and they have a project that's called Central Asia Political Exiles, CAPE for short, uh, and it has a long list of, of people who have been uh, having to flee the country and and also goes into detail about the, the nefarious schemes and and tricks the governments of their home countries have tried to use to get them back. But I can I can recommend that also. Uh, and with that, I'll have to conclude today's broadcast. Uh, but, uh, you know, huge thanks to Lila and Christophe. I appreciate you being on the show and explaining this so well for our audience. Uh, a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medley's podcast producer in Washington, D.C., 
And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjilis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting RFRL's website at rfrl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.